You have it too. <laughs> Thank you so much for, uh, I start off every share. I heard uh, from a teacher once, he started off every shear and he said, thank you all so much for coming. It's not, uh, it's not lost on me that, that uh, this is prime time during the week. It's not so easy to get away from your homes to come and to learn with me of all people, but uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate uh, not speaking out into the void. And the Wayu Base Medrash, when I was learning in Yeshiva, there was a guy who would speak. He must have been doing it for somebody who would speak with a uh, recorder at his makom, at his place in the Beit Midrash, and he would give full-fledged, Talmud classes directly, and there was nobody around listening. I'm like, I wish I had that kind of energy. I wish I had that kind of uh, uh, that kind of dedication. I don't know who he was talking to, but he posted, and you know, people, I guess, thousands of shiur and thousands of classes on YU Torah, which is the website, the repository of all YU classes. But with even without an audience, you should you should teach Torah. I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, but last week we were talking about inhabiting beginner's mindset, a teacher's obligation to be marking, what a beautiful Hebrew word, to lower themselves down to the status, to the state of, of a student, to find their inner child. And, um, and when I was talking about this philosophy, this orientation of the beginner's mindset, uh, I think that every teacher, right, the, I always say to people, if you have a, if you have a smidgen of, can't see you, Wendy. Um, if, I, if you have even a smidgen of arrogance entering into a classroom, you will be disabused of it very quickly. I think probably the, the, um, the most deleterious character trait that you see sometimes in educators and the one that sets up for disasters, somebody is an adult that comes in, and especially in the realm of Torah, um, where it's very common to find people that when you know a lot of Torah, you could find yourself elevated. I know a lot of Torah. And you could feel that uh, you know, you're coming from a place of, coming from a place of superiority. I know Torah, and I'm going to give you that Torah. I'm going to give that over to you. That's a beautiful thing. But when you enter into a classroom of students who aren't necessarily prepared at that moment to understand this is the very most important thing in their lives, and they might act out, or they might not always be listening to you. They might not always be following instructions because they are children, right? Because that's normal and natural. It's natural for there to be resistance. If you're not prepared for, for that kind of disappointment, um, the classroom would be a very painful experience, right? I would say that of the, the three most important qualities that I talk to for potential candidates or people, so I talk about hardworking, I talk about coachability, and I talk about humility, right? When you come into the classroom, when you're teaching, when you're with your own children even, humility is so important because humility means that I might not be listened to at this particular moment. You might not even follow what I'm telling you at this particular moment, but, but I understand it's not about me. We talked about that two, two sessions ago. That orientation, that beginner's mindset, I'm starting again every day, even the most seasoned educators, if they don't approach every classroom every day or every interaction with each new student and say, this is a brand new situation in front of me, it's going to be, it's going to be a painful experience. So, so let's jump into the words of, of the Piazetzner. And, and I want to gain a little bit of, of purchase today. And, and I mentioned last week, I talked about, just because I'm a geek for this stuff, the difference in recensions, R-E-S-C-E-N, right? The recensions, the different um, presentations of the text. There is a, a big discrepancy here. You'll see in my text, it says, and because this is so, and in the text that you have, it just jumps into it. Locane, it says, he says, we were talking about that, we were talking about this notion of lowering yourself to a student and seeing every student as an individual, seeing every student differentiated. That even though there's a classroom of 20 kids in front of me, 
Every single one comes with very different backgrounds, with very different, um, who knows what happened in each child's home the night before. Maybe in this child's home, it was a really tough night and they're coming to school with that baggage. Maybe this child's um, baby brother was up all night screaming and they didn't really get to, to sleep the night before. Or maybe this one has, you know, I'll just say, tell you from my experience bicultural, I was talking to parents. This is my mistake. I was talking to parents and I said, you know, um, she had been doing so well in class and I just noticed the last two weeks or so distracted, not really present. And they said, oh yeah, Rabbi Rosenfeld, you know, she has a leading role in the play and she hasn't been, uh, she hasn't been sleeping at all. She's been like reviewing her lines. She's super nervous. I said, I, I neglected to take that into account when I was speaking to you. I'm sorry. Right. And I know that that will pass. I know that that's going to be something that would, that's, or even another student where, you, where you're saying something, you don't realize that there was a loss or a bereavement in the family. All this needs to be taken into account. I mean, that's very basic stuff. But then going into the, the different styles of learners, who's a visual learner? Who's a learner that's going to need another reminder to take notes? Who's a learner that's going to need another reminder um, that, that the test is due? Who needs an extra help in organization? Who needs me to call them back in after class to say, Let's go through your folders and let's make sure that everything is organized before we leave the class so that you're prepared for tomorrow and that tomorrow we don't have a repeat that you didn't come to class. Looking at every student individually and saying, I gave you a command, I gave you a directive, you didn't fulfill it and therefore you're not a good student or not, you're not a good child, right? Spoilers, never ever say that to a kid, but <laughs> ever, right? It's, 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 such a, it's such an important thing to remember, right? Right? There's no, and the Piazzetzner actually, I hope we get to it tonight. He says, there's no such thing as a bad kid. No such thing. Right? There might be students who aren't doing, there might be kids who aren't doing what we want them to do at this time. But then you remember what the first part of that sentence, what I want them to do. Right? It's not always going to be answered. He says, Vikave on Chicane. And since this is so, Vikave on Chicane. Sorry, I made a mistake. Turn back one page, one paragraph before, page nine. Vikave on Chicane. And because this is so, lo bechol hanarim shavet hu achinuch. Education chinuch is not the same for all children. Talui hu bechol naar venar kifitiv o datomi dotavchule. To educate and to raise child is dependent upon each and every child according to their nature, their mindset, their abilities, and also their character traits. And he's going to get more into this in a second, right? So the first thing that a good parent and a good teacher should notice is. This child is like this, and this child is like this. Probably the worst thing you want to hear, and I guess we keep on going back to parent-teacher conferences, probably the worst thing you want to hear from a teacher is, I, what, how's my kid doing? Oh, I don't, I don't really know them so well. That, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. You, you, you are sending your kids to be cared for. The bare minimum that you should expect to see from the adults that are educating them is that they know your kid. Even if it's very difficult, even if things are not working out right now, even if it's a struggle, even if your child is struggling in the classroom, teachers should at least recognize them, who they are as individuals. They shouldn't just be this undifferentiated mass that's sitting in, a cl- in your classroom factory doing the work and leaving. It is the responsibility of a parent and an educator to recognize these. That's the bare minimum. It's not enough for a teacher to recognize themselves, not enough for a parent to recognize themselves, say, this is my parenting style, this is my teaching style. Right? Some teachers are one way, some teachers are another way, some parents are, uh, like to uh, have a household that's run in this specific way, no two households are going to look the same way. You have to recognize that it's on the mitchanech. If you recognize the Hebrew hit pa'el over here, which we teach in third grade, 
right? The hitpa'el means that it's also on the student to recognize themselves. A very good practice, and I, I've never done this, but I've seen master teachers do this, is that they'll ask students at the beginning of the year to describe their learning style to the teacher. Now, there's some very, there's some very uh, thought out and, and thoughtful ways in which teachers ask that. They'll ask for a writing sample, or they'll ask for a way for the students to describe themselves. I saw uh, in, my, in one of my, daughter, my daughter's teacher this year for general studies, she asked the students in the beginning, tell me about yourself, but with very directed questions. And, and when she presented that, we didn't know about it. When she presented that at, at uh, open school night, we were like, this is awesome. Just imagine doing that at home. Imagine, going, imagine having that moment with your child and, and saying, can you describe to me right, what works? Be reflective for a moment. Tell me what works best. Managers do this all the time, right? You have somebody you want to hit a certain target or, or, or a sales target or a trades target. You, you, somebody that you want to do something, you say, tell me what you think the best way for you to get to this is. What works, what's the environment that works best for you? What kind of motivation works best for you? And people will be shockingly honest with you about, about and kids will be shockingly honest with you when, they, when you ask them this question. Let me get to know your learning style. Let me get to know what motivates you. When you ask people, sometimes there's an article in the New Yorker a while back about, um, I forgot the name of the guy, but it was about uh, sales bros, for lack of a better term. There's a whole world, <laughs> the whole world of sales bros, of guys that go out and literally do this work of calling. You have to be good with rejection. And, and the ones who are successful, shockingly successful, right? So they talked about this guy that does training set, uh, uh, seminars. He says, when you find out that thing, if you're selling solar panels door to door, when you find out that thing, nobody wants to buy s- solar panels from the person who's going door to door. What they really want is the other things that you're selling, right? He says, you go to that person, you say, do you want to be technologically ahead of all your neighbors? Do you want to be somebody that projects self-sufficiency? What motivates you to want to go ahead and to lay out, you know, $150 a month for this thing? When you realize that, and even from sales bros, we can learn uh, uh, an idea in Chinuch, that's important. So, the children themselves have to tell you, the good educator, the good parent shouldn't just rely on themselves, shouldn't just rely on their training, shouldn't just rely on what makes them good, even if you're a very good parent. Don't just rely on that, command and teach, but rather, Look at each student, look at each child, grab onto what makes them special, grab onto what makes them unique, and hold onto it, and use that to their benefit. And of course, there is a place in parenting and in education to tell students, now you must do this. Here you must do this. I started off my class today with a pop quiz. There was a lot of moaning. There was a lot of groaning. And I even turned to Mr. Giver, who was there at the moment. I said, this, I looked at him on the side and said, this is so hard for me. It's so hard for me. A student had their hand raised, right? Asking a question that they knew the answer to. They had their hand raised and I had to say, I'm sorry, I was only taking questions about reading the, uh, about reading the psukim right now. That is like impossible for me to do, right? Because so much of me wants to just be, of, of, of course, you're asking me a question. You're engaged. Awesome. Let me get into that right now with you. But sometimes there is a place and there needs to be a place saying right now, all books away, just your worksheet out. This is what you need to be doing now. What's important about them is because if I never would have done that, I never would have seen the students that were struggling with this particular thing. And I would have been doing them a disservice. In, in the short term, it's going to be a really painful process for them and for me also. 
But it's up to us as adults to look at the long-term of things. Excuse me. You have to ask yourself, you say, what does this student want at this point? We use this in discipline sometimes, in school and at home also. Right? When I get really um, upset with something the student has done, one of my go-tos and part of the philosophy of positive behavioral intervention is that you look at the student, you don't say, we had a rule and you broke it. Why, you know, you'll hear, why did you do that? Right? That's something. I don't think that's ever worked in the history of parenting or education. Why did you pull the fire alarm? I don't, I don't know. Not that that ever... <laughs> we had somebody that pulled the fire alarm like three times when I was in high school. It was really... I found out like years, years, years later. I think before like the kid got married, he like told one of the teachers... <laughs> That, that question, I don't know, somebody here, has that ever worked for you? Has that ever worked to say, why, why did you hit your sister? Why, why are you giving me, sometimes you go, why are you giving me such hard times? Never worked. It won't work. But imagine going and saying, what are you trying to tell me with this? When, when you were acting up in class, when you disrespected the teacher, what you're obviously, some, there's something in your mind. There was a thought process here. Please, and, and it means respecting that there was a thought process. The kids aren't just mindless automatons. That they just do things to get us upset. What were you trying to tell us with that? I've gotten wild answers to that question. Sometimes I asked that question once of a student, not in our school. I asked that question once of a student for something that had happened. Why did you do that? Kid burst into tears and started telling me about something that's happening at home. I was looking for, kids will be on. I was looking for attention. I feel ignored. Ratzon, this idea, right? Understand that each child's desires are different, just like all of us are in this room and that we all want and desire different things. Children want and desire different things also. Reminds me of one of my favorite teachings of all time. You don't have this in front of you. I'm just going to read you a teaching from Rav Kook. Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi, Ashkenazic chief rabbi of the land of Israel. So this is the Chamishiyah. They call it, this is the five. So there's five books put into one. Cook was a mystic, a teacher, uh, a, a, the, the prophet of religious Zionism. Cook's teachings, I mean, one of the most influential te- rabbinic teachers of the last hundred years. There's pictures right up in the middle over there in my, uh, in my library. That's Cook in the middle. Cook was the humanist. Cook was somebody that, that saw people who were different than him in observance and put out his hand and, and sustained tremendous amount of opprobrium and anger from rabbinic establishment for doing so. And somebody said to Rav Cook, they said, Rav Cook, you know, you write, you write about the holiness of soccer that uh, people in Jerusalem are playing on Shabbos. How could you do such a thing? You're being no yad l'posha'im. You're giving your hand out to sinners. And Rav Kook responded, don't we say that in our prayers about God? That line that they said is God gives his hand out to sinners. Rav Kook says, I'm just trying to emulate God. I'm just trying to be a person who accepts every Jew and tries to make a Kiddush Hashem. That was Rav Kook said. What, what was he allowing? Rav wrote an essay. One of the reasons that one of Rav Kook's books were condemned to, to flames, yeah, banned, was that Rav Kook wrote an essay um, there were young, Rav Kook wrote the following words in Hebrew. He says the exercise that young Hebrews, right, the new Judeans were doing, 
the sandal, tan, sabras, the exercise that they were doing, Rav Kook says is the same as the Yehudim, as the unifications of God's name that the greatest Kabbalists do. Rav Kook wrote that. He, people didn't like that Rav Kook wrote that. What does that mean? It means that greatest Kabbalists, right, the people who are cloistered all day, involved in contemplating the secrets of the divine, not involved in this world at all, so the highest mystical work that, uh, that they could do is that, they, that, they, that they're miyache dichudim, unifying unifications. This mystical sense that in, in Latin, unio mystica, everything that we see is all one, the whole world, all these things are, cre- are, are created and the fragmented world can all be brought up, brought up into one in, in, in God. And this understanding of all the ideas in the Torah, all the things in the world can be brought up to it. It's considered, you know, the highest, most rarefied mystical realm for only the most spiritually adept. The greatest righteous people. Rav Kook said that that is tent, what, what the soccer, that these young kids are playing on Shabbos, which was, you know, raised the ire in the 1920s of the rabbinic establishment in Israel, of some of the old guard of Cook said that these two work, these two things, the soccer. And these unifications, that there is, that there is a line that could be drawn between them. Because that's sort of Cook looked at the world. That's how he looked at, he, he chose to look at something like that and see that even though that might not be necessarily what he wanted, there was something positive, there was something redemptive, there was something important about that. And it could be looked at with a positive mindset. Rav Cook wrote that. So that's Rav Cook, right? One of my heroes. So Rav Cook wrote a series of, of short, uh, of short, um, what we would, uh, short um, uh, units, short, short lines, few short lines, talking about individual character traits. He called this book Midota Raya, the characteristics, the character traits, Raya is Reish for Rav, Avraham, Yitzchak, HaKohen. That's what we call him. So you're right, so I'm going to read in Hebrew and I'm going to translate because I carry this with me when I teach every single day because I always thought that this was talking about me. Rav Kook writes on the erich, on the, on the entry for ratzon, for desire. He writes this. The job of an educator is to look at a child and to develop the character trait of desire, of will. What do you want? And then to develop it into holy, into lofty pursuits. The job of educators, the job of parents is to look at a child, is to look at even adults and to say, what is it that you want? What is it that you desire? What are the things that motivate you? And to use that and to drive that and to elevate that towards holiness. We're going to get, I'm going to give an example in a second. But, but even in Chinuch, when you look the Piazzetzer gives an example, I'll, I'll say it now. Piazzetzer gives an example. They say you find a child that is so stubborn, that looks at you and no matter how many times you tell them they're just so stubborn, only on the umpteenth time, which was a word that was used a lot in my house growing up, the umpteenth time, I don't know how much, um, I don't know how much an umpteenth is, but the umpteenth time, I've asked you, umpteenth time I've asked you to go to bed. So Piazzetzer says you can look at that child as stubborn brat, not listening, not doing anything that they're told, or you could look at that and you could say, here's a trait. Here's a trait that is strong. This person is steadfast. This person doesn't move. This person needs to have a reason. 
and then you could imagine, imagine for yourself what that, what that child, what that student looks like in the future for something good, right? And we just finished the Megillah. Mordechai has every reason to bow down to Haman. He's not going to bow down. He's not going to ever do it. It's in the future tense. We'll never bow down to Haman. It's not going to happen. Mordechai is obstinate. Mordechai is stubborn. Maybe Mordechai, I don't know how he was in, uh, in yeshiva. Maybe Mordechai was that stubborn child who didn't want to listen. Even more so. Rav Kook is talking about a student. I would say that the worst, the worst thing that you see in a student is apathy. Apathy, I have a hard time. I don't know, how, I don't know what to do with apathy. The student who is giving you a hard time, the student who pushes back, the student who says, I don't want to, the student who, who goes and, and, and goes above and beyond protesting in high school students, the one who thou doth protest too much, the one who says there is no God and all the rabbis are wrong. And that's, those are my people. <laughs> I look at a student like that, I'm like, that student, if they, if they could be on one side that strong, for sure they could be brought to the other side, to the positive side. The ones that are part of, the ones that are just in the middle, very hard. Your job is going to be to develop that. When I see students, even at a super young age, even very, who are running around, bouncing off the walls, or the ones who are, who are so caught up in a book that you can't bring them out of it, you say, this is, there's power here. That power is going to change the world. You have to believe that as a parent. You have to believe that as a teacher. That's ratzon. That's the thing that education, educating for desire is what we should be doing. I told you last week, and, I, and I'll say it again and again, the content that they get in fifth and sixth grade I had great teachers. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can remember. I can, I can remember some things. For sure, it's there, latent. We're building foundations. Those foundations have more to do with motivation, more to do with the experiences, more to do with the feelings that they have at such a young age and the skills. That's why skills are so important to allow them to become the lifelong learners that we were talking about. That's Ratzam. And to recognize that each student and every child has different ratzon, has different desires, different motivations, to find what it is that motivates them, that's the key. That's, that's when you start unlocking greatness. This is what Shlomo said, educate the child according to their path. Darko, in Hebrew, path over here is mentioned in the, in, in the, in the singular. Really, if we were talking about just looking at children as this undifferentiated mass, we'd say, Al-Pidarkam, the plural, according to their way. But it doesn't say that. If we take the Pasuk, if we take Tanakh seriously, it's Al-Pidarko, according to their way. Al-Pidarko, Shkol Echav Echad. I wrote over here in my notes over here, I don't know exactly what I meant. This. Don't talk in myself. Don't mistake your idiosyncratic or mildly self-aware efforts here for individual care for a student. Maybe I'm talking to myself. Right? What I mean is thinking that, oh, I'm, I'm going to pay lip service to differentiation. I'm going to at least indicate that I'm aware of this. Right? That's fine. But don't, in, don't mistake that for true individual care for a student. Don't mistake. What I think I really mean is don't mistake learning about it or reading about it and saying, okay, now, now I'm aware of it for doing the work. It's not the work. The work doesn't come easy. The work is going to be a constant push in saying, and, and by the way, children change over time. What motivated a child last week might not be what motivates them this week. Sometimes people think that it's going to be easy to just do that work with extrinsic motivation. I use tickets, for example, during, uh, we ask questions during lunchtime. Kids love it. 
It's amazing what you would, amazing the kind of buy-in you get when there's a promise of like Minecraft toys at the end of it. It's unbelievable. So why not use that constantly in the classroom? Let's create a token economy. Students will learn. So first of all, the students get left behind. The students don't raise their hands quickly enough. The students that might not be motivated by the prizes that you have right now or might need something more, they're left behind in the dust. So that's why as a rule, I say I only use extrinsic motivation in informal settings. Prizes during a, a Saturday night gathering, that's fine. But in formal educational settings in the classroom, to let kids know that the thing that motivates them should be anything other than their own self-development and their own self-growth, we'd be doing them a disservice. So let's continue. In this book, or right now at least, in this discourse, in this discussion between parents and teachers, we're not talking about pedagogy. We're not talking about how, what's the mode of delivery of content. Am I going to ask multiple choice questions for this particular unit, or am I going to ask open-ended questions? Am I going to present the material through a, a slide deck, or am I going to present it through a project that they need to have? Am I going to split the class and flip the classroom and have them do the work watching videos of me at home and come in and do work in school? That's, not, that's pedagogy. It's not what we're talking about. To be sure, how you choose words, how you orient yourself, how you move around the classroom, how you even arrange the classroom. We're on like our fifth setup in my classroom right now. Desks were one way, now the desks are another way. For the Haggadah thing, we're moving them into a circle. All of that matters. I remember when I started out at SAR High School, so I was teaching in a place called the Annex, and I, I, I realized after about a month, I realized something is off here. And I realized that when I came into the classroom, the way that the desks were arranged was kind of haphazard. I don't know what class was in there before. I was left a little bit haphazard. I would come 10 minutes before every class, and I would just spend 10 minutes making sure the smart board was ready and on, not that students come in and I'm queuing it up, but that every desk was arranged in a particular way. That's pedagogy. That's really important. But that's not what we're talking about right here, right yet. How do we take over, right? How do we get something into a child's mind? How do we get them to grasp the concept of, of pi? How do we get them to grasp the concept of, of, uh, of rabbinic ordinances versus biblical ordinances? Sure, we have to be sholate. We have to be able to get things into a child's mind, right? And, and, and all of that is really important. It's important for children to know that. But that's not what we're talking about here. How to expand the child's understanding of, of Torah. That's fine. That's pedagogy and there's ways to do that. We're not just searching for the intellect of a child. We're not just searching for what scores they're going to have at the end of the year achievement exam. We're not just looking for what they say over at the Seder that they remembered on Passover from their teacher in class and that they wrote in. That's not what we're talking about. That will come later, but it's not going to happen first. Rak et kol hatalmid, the whole learner. 1920s, this guy is writing this. The Piazetzner is writing. The whole learner, a phrase that gets tossed around so much, understanding that it's not just what they get in their mind or what they put back on their homework or in their tests, but the whole learner. Et nefesh. Their soul. What animates them? The animating spirit of these Jewish children. We're looking for. To connect them to something transcendent. To connect them to something divine. I say when I give speeches sometimes. When it you know, happens sometimes that I have to give a speech to students. One of the lines I go back to again and again and again. Is you have no idea. The sacrifices of 
the generation in some cases. For some people, it's one generation that, that did enormous struggle, right? Students sometimes are people that grew up in very different worlds, maybe not even Jewish at all, and the absolute heroics that they did to get their child into a Jewish classroom, the worlds that they've left, the sacrifices that they've made to get their child into this classroom. Or for some people, the, the hundreds of generations before that each, thing, each one has struggled, each one has been willing. We're lucky. We live in the most prosperous and, and even now, even with uh, how scary things seem, we live in the prosperous, most, most welcoming diaspora ever in Jewish history. But that, but that if you go two, three generations up in your family tree, there are people who are willing to die for this. I said, and, and, and you dare waste your time? You dare, you dare, like, you know, I don't want to be too, you dare dishonor their memory by being disrespectful to Torah, to tefillah, to prayer? How could it be? The jo- our job at the end of the day, we have to remember, our job is that when we're raising when we're raising these children, when we're continuing our traditions, and even if we're in a home where there's mixed traditions, to, to recognize the value of a Jewish tradition, what we're giving over is something that for thousands of years has been tried to be snuffed out, completely snuffed out. That's why we say, the when we have the prime pedagogical night in the Jewish calendar, the night of teaching children, which is what the Seder is. Seder is an educational ceremony filled with commit with mitzvot and commandments, but to be sure, an educational ceremony, right, which is how the Torah introduces it. That's why the Koda Tid is teaching children is that that's that's what stood for us. Every single generation, people have come and tried to snuff this out, prevent us from doing this. I meet kids, you know, I was like, you know, it's not it's nice to tear up at parent teacher conferences. You meet kids whose parents, you know, a generation ago are behind the iron curtain. That was illegal, illegal to teach Torah. And now, and now we're sitting there. And to, and to recognize them, to point that out to children, say, how, how, how miraculous is this moment? And always remember it when you're in the day-to-day and you're rushing from class to class. How miraculous is this moment? What an incredible thing. That's what the Piazzetts are saying. You have to remember to always tap into that when you're teaching in these classrooms. The kashram below Kesel to connect them to God, to transcendence, to something more than the day to day experience that we all have. To be a Jewish child that's connected to the transcendent message that we have for the world, to the message of rectification for the world, and to connect to the divine. I joke around, I say, you know, telling you everything I do at school, and eventually I'll say something to people like, wait, entire, hold up. <laughs> Hold up for a second. <laughs> mincha with the eighth graders. If you ever davened uh, in the seventh graders now, if you ever daven mincha afternoon uh, vespers, <laughs> afternoon prayers in uh, in a Jewish day school, it's hard. It's the middle of the day, you know, for the morning prayers, at least there's a setup. You understand. You come out of the car. Afternoon prayers, you're interrupting things to get them to settle down. Isn't always easy to get them to focus. It's even harder. So. It's me, one of the harder parts of my day. So at the end, sometimes when I'm feeling like, all right, we made it through, we got it, we were respectful, we did things right. I have to say, I think we do it beautifully. Um, so I always say, um, I always say, okay, the daily word. I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like real 
youth pastor energy. This is real youth pastor energy, right? The daily word. I got that from one of the uh, general studies teachers. Like, you have great youth pastor energy. I'm like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So I said the daily word. I looked at them. I looked at them. I said, I've asked all the questions. There is a God. Have a great day, right? So two of the kids looked at me. They're like, like almost like you get the quizzical little rabbit. What is wrong with you? (laughs) But like, but like that's, at the end of the day, like to not, to say I have, I have definites, I have absolutes, I have things that are animating me when I'm teaching you and I want you to be aware of them also when you leave my classrooms, that's also okay. That's part of why we teach too. Last paragraph of the day. Hine, ad kama kol av, one of my favorite paragraphs and one of, uh, one of the most crucial things. I want to pause for a second. I've been doing a lot of talking. Uh, any reactions, anything? I'm just thinking about what the, what Ben said last week. I really he got me thinking a lot. Any reactions? Any questions? Pause. Nothing. L'chaim. I love the behavior and the motivating kids. It's not easy to find that when they get older. Like I feel like we've seen that with our daughter. How do you mean? It's hard to find motivations as they get older. Like it's so easy when they're six to be like, "What motivates you?" Polly Pocket. Like correct. When you're 10, 11, it's like. Motivate are things that I can't give you always. It's Correct. not a trip. It's not, like we always say, it's like an experience. Like spending time with us is really the motivation when you have three other kids. <laughs> Cor- uh, uh, right. If you ever tried to say, I was trying to get uh, Judah, two and a half year old, I was trying to get him to clean up his magnetiles. Here, here's a wall. I don't know what to do in this situation, actually. Here's a wall. You say, if you don't clean it up, I will take the magnetiles away. Something I, something I won't, A, A, I won't, A, I won't, A, I won't, it will hurt you, A, I won't, A, I won't follow through on it, B, I don't mean it, C, he goes and he looks at me and he basically says, okay, two and a half years old, what if you go to your child and you say you're grounded, they say, fine, without your phone, fine, has your kid ever done this to you? Yeah, or, but then they have to name all they've got to this kid. <laughs> <laughs> no, fine. Like, no They're like, I have an iPad. <laughs> but, but that's a real impasse sometimes. I, I've, I've seen this with students. Sometimes, like, you know, you, you know you're working with, with somebody they have to work with and you say, we're going, to, we're going to reach out to your parents now. And you see a change in demeanor. Right? Something is there. But it happens since they say, I'm going I'm to call your parents now. Not a threat, like, we're going to call them, we're going to let them know what's going on. They're like, okay. <laughs> and sometimes you just want to say, what, what, what I really want to ask is, why doesn't that bother you? Right. Right? Or when my two and a half year old says, fine. Right? He like, looks at me, he's like, take away the magnetiles, see if I care. Because he's That's, spending time with you. He's, you're, you're staying around. That's right. Say, yeah. say again? He's spending time with you. You're staying around in that interaction. So you're not just leaving him and he's going to clean up. He's getting your attention and that's what he wants. That's right. He knows our kids already. <laughs> that's right. And, and meaning hey, whether or not he's fully aware, right, that's great. Whether or not he's fully aware, he knows that. You're staying in that moment. That's right. All right. And that's elicited a, a strong reaction. Let me help you get started. Yeah. Right. So that's what my wife said. <laughs> my wife said. My wife said, that's not how we talk. That's not how we do it. But like when you're frustrated, that's what you come to. When you're what frustrated. We, what we say all the time is, what can we get? What can we take away that will really have an effect? Then you're, right, that's a surefire way to be like, oh, you know that toy I never play with? I don't like, they're in the, take away that toy. That's the one I got for Hanukkah last year. That's right. 
Yeah, but if you take away something that they haven't touched in like five months and it's the one that they want all of a sudden, right? The world is coming to a grinding halt. You better find the darn thing. Right, and know. sometimes you turn to the very big thing, right? So, like, right. I promised my daughter, I promised my oldest daughter. I'm sorry, Sophie. Uh, I'm just <laughs> using her as an example. She's not even home yet. She's still yeah. Elle's probably not home yet. This is wow. this is this is insane. This is crazy. Not true. Not true. We're gonna get her out of bed. If you don't get out of bed, you're gonna be late to school. <laughs> We won't let you All be right. in the play. We won't let you be in the play. Right, but, <laughs> but they know that we won't follow it. We won't, exactly. Even though that's the biggest desire. What's worked well in our family is you give two choices that you're happy with either choice. But they're happy because they get to make a choice as well. So with the For example? Tiles, you would say you can clean up the magnet tiles or I'm going to clean up the magnet tiles, but it's going to cost you something that is important to you if I do it. Mm-hmm. And then they don't want to spend money or whatever is important to them on you cleaning it up, so they'll clean it up. It's hard to either way, they're the one making the choice. So there's, you, you don't have that conflict anymore where you're fighting with them. That's it's right. easier for you because right. you're getting what you want. The magnet tiles get cleaned up and it sort of neutralizes all that back and forth stuff. It sounds like a Balana thing. It was a YouTube video. My favorite is when um, it's great. I heard a kindergarten teacher say this to the kids when they had the choices with the cupcakes. You know, you can get your first choice or you could have your second choice. <laughs> you know, chocolate or vanilla, yeah. right? Uh-huh. <laughs> leaving choice open, yeah. I think yeah. this is something that we're hearing so around the room. Really. Leaving choice open leaves open what the Piazzetta said is desire. That's right. right? We're still... We're still leaving, right, something that's really important, and this, this I can tell you definitively um, is a bad thing. If you back someone into a corner, right, if you back a student or a child into a corner, if you leave no option for self-determination, and, and what that means in every scenario and situation is different, uh, so you'll either expose yourself, right, we're not going to not let her participate in the play. They know that. Right. So now, now you, what happens when you don't follow through on that is you've now exposed yourself as fraudulent, right. Right, that you're not following through, which is you need to follow through. The first empty threat is the last threat, is how it works. But, but leaving open their own self-determination is really, really crucial. Yeah, that's where apathy comes from, when they feel like they don't have a choice. Correct. It, it's going to be fine. It is what it is. But that's, that's a hard posture to have in school or at home. Let's finish up with this paragraph. It's to do it on the fly. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is what I mean to say and, and, what, and what, is, what is infuriating sometimes about parenting podcasts or when you, when you hear of the self-help people is that they'll tell you, right? So some people are good at this, actually. They're not all like this. But they'll never show you all the times that that method failed or that you failed to be mindful along the way, right? And what the, I think even the Pia Zetzner would probably tell you, of even writing this book, that there were times and students that it, maybe the Pia Zetzner is different. I don't know, he was Kaddish Vitar, he was holy, he was saint, right? But, but I will at least tell you that for all my talk, and this is something I meant to say in the first class, nothing that I'm saying here should be coming from a place of me knowing what I'm doing more. All I know I do is read these words and prepare these words and to tell you what I think they mean and how they connect to my practice as an educator and to hopefully resonate with you. doesn't mean that I'm getting it right. doesn't mean in school I try. I mean, what I, what I could promise you educating your children is, is I could try, and I know Mr. Giver does, and I know my, my faculty for sure, can try as much as possible to get it right. 
but this is hard work and it's going to, it's going to involve mistakes. It's going to involve, it's going to involve areas where there, where there are going to be gaps because we live in the real world and these are real kids and they're dynamic, right? But, but something I say, uh, something I say constantly is that I can at least promise you that I won't make the same mistake twice. I can at least promise you that I'll be mindful next time. And I'll identify where the gaps is. As much as every parent and every teacher knows, you know that this child now who's refusing to get out of bed or who's hitting their sibling or who's talking out of turn in class, they're not going to always remain children. They're going to, unfortunately, they won't stay forever young. That was my uh, first speech at the Chumash play, uh, last uh, sitter play last year. I quoted Bob Dylan and said, you know, we, we, we give a blessing. May you stay forever young. Unfortunately, it's not the case. It's not the case, even when it's hard, right? Sometimes there's going to come a time where we're going to look at our children. They're going to be moving. They'll move away. They'll have families of their own. And we will we'll almost beg for that fight. We'll almost beg for that, that moment of difficulty. We'll almost beg for that moment. They're looking at us and, and really deep down, they know that we're the only ones that could help them as their parents. They don't stay forever young because that just says you have to recognize that we have to know that they won't always be children. They're going to grow older just like we did. We were a child once too. And it might be that they'll grow up to be true greats at one point. Nevertheless, there's some parents and there's some teachers that they say that their goal that the end all be all is the child in front of them as they are right now. And listen to how he sees this play out. Because they only see, because we only see a little child in front of us right now. They say our goal is just you could be a good boy and good girl. Just be a good student right now. And they fail to recognize that the good student right now might not be what this child, this child might actually need to act out. They might need to express. They might need to go through this difficulty, these challenges, these failures now in order to become great. But sometimes when you look at teachers, our goal is just that the class should be managed, right? I wrote over here in my notes, I said, with kids, it's okay to have dreams for them, but they can't be educated on your dreams. You could communicate it to them, but you have to remember that they're your dreams and that your child is going to develop dreams of their own. It's on you to nurture them. You have to understand they're going to grow old and they're going to have their own personalities. They're going to have their own lives also. And that the goal is not just to say, be good kids right now. That's never a goal. You'll see sometimes that they'll teach them simple faith or simple Torah for simple children. Because what's the point of doing something more complex than that? It's just the child. I don't want to ever hear from a parent. I don't want to ever say as a teacher, it's just children. So it's just children, so I, so I understand. So, it's, uh, so I don't need to be more sophisticated. I'll hear sometimes when I'm talking to people, I only want to teach high school. Why? Right? They'll say, oftentimes what comes out of that, I only want to teach high school, means I only want to, I only want to engage in intellectual work. I want to teach the Torah that, that I have within me, right? And I said, sometimes the most, the most rewarding intellectual work is understanding how to get through to a young child. To understanding that even one verse of Torah, you, yeah, you could be in the A shear, the A class of 12th graders, and you could go through 10 pages of Gemara, 
with commentaries. You can have deep philosophical discussions. But now that I'm teaching middle school, there's nothing quite as rewarding as teaching a kid how to, how to read and translate a word for the first time, even if that's the only word that you get through the entire week and pulling teeth in order to do so. Right? So you shouldn't think that that's simple or that's small or that's the goal right now is to be a good boy and a good girl. That's not it. That's not a goal. He says, That's all, right? All right, I'll, I'll deal with you as a child right now, and that's it. That's the strongest word to use. He says, somebody that looks at a child says, I'm just teaching you as a child right now. That's my only goal. That person is sinning against God. That person is, is it's a dereliction of duty. You have to look at the classroom, you have to look at the kids in front of you, and look at them, and I don't want to be mistaken here, right? A great, a great teacher, a great surgeon, a great parent, a great athlete, a great artist, to look at them and to say there is the full gamut of humanity in front of me, not just little kids in front of me in a classroom. To recognize them, it's heavy. It's the gravity of the situation. I'm not just raising a five-year-old right now. I'm raising a full-fledged person. Children are not just adults in potentia. And right now they're not adults, so they don't get treated like that. But children are, children are a whole world unto themselves. They need to be treated with the respect that a child deserves at that point. That we shouldn't just look at them as projects. We shouldn't just say, okay, the project means that we, we treat a five-year-old as a five-year-old should be treated right now. Some of my most powerful moments as a parent when I'm doing it right I was playing Uno with my daughter and I just let her teach me the game I pretended that I didn't know any of the rules of Uno I don't really know them so well but I let my five-year-old teach me the rules of Uno on Friday night and it was like you know you almost have tears in her this was the most beautiful thing to let her be big does she do pickup drop downs? I don't know what that is even. She didn't tell me, she didn't tell me the rules. She told me, I, I was they saying, I asked, I said, I said, no, I said, this zero has a line through it and this zero doesn't have a line through it. So she goes, Abba, you have to learn the difference. She literally said that. I, I didn't know. Some of the most revelatory things is when teachers ask kids to do projects and the kids teach the class. You see the most amazing things. Yeah. To look at your child and to say no matter how young you are. I love seeing parents who talk to young... I, I hate this. Unfortunately, when I was doing... And I'll end with this. I know I've been talking for a while. In Kem Simcha, you know, we were doing sensitivity training to people who appear and present with intellectual challenges. So they told us sometimes the most painful and difficult thing is when somebody looks at somebody with an intellectual challenge and gets... The, you know this move? Hi, how are you? You know that? <laughs> like the worst, most, most condescending... Right, and sometimes it's a batch. I'm condescending. I'm I'm lowering myself to the child, right? You're not lowering yourself to a child. You you need to level yourself with the child. Level yourself with the child means that I'm seeing a full fledged person. The most beautiful teachers are the ones who speak to children. Doesn't mean speaking them the same way you speak to adults, but doesn't mean dumbing down your words. It means speaking more slowly, more directly, but treating them as people who are sophisticated with with. With, with as complex internal worlds as you and I have. That's when you really start to, you start to have a moment with the child like that and you start to talk to them and you're like, whoa, worlds, worlds. That's because that's just telling us to look at. Look at them for what, for what they can become and what they are now. If to see them as they are now, as, as gigantic sequoias, and we're looking at the seed, but we know it's the sequoia that's in there. That's what we have to do. 
Lahafrichan. And I, I want to mention, and we'll talk a little bit about it uh, next week, Mirza Hashem. Talk a little bit about it is that uh, one of the great teachers, Rav Shlomo Volba, we mentioned last week, so he, he sees all of parenting and all of teaching through the metaphor of the gardener, right? Right? Uh, and he is Riyav Binyan Mechinuch, planting and construction. And this notion of raising that we talked about is like looking at something and seeing there's an entire world in the seed. Rabbi Cohen in uh, Goodath constantly quotes uh, from William Blake. Right? He says, to, to perceive the, the universe in a grain of sand and eternity in the palm of your hand, right? Kind of attitude we need to see when we're looking at the soul of a child as well. All right, we gained a little bit of purchase this week. Mirza Shem, next week we're going to do even more. Um, but I want to thank you all.